Welcome, friends, to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week, we are doing a From the Vault episode. So, former bonus episode we are putting into the main feed. This time we're doing Dune, 1984, David Lynch film uh, that we had a lot of fun with. You know, we've covered a lot of Dune properties up to this point. You know, we did the new adaptation with Fonda. Then we came back to this one. And then in the future, on our bonus feed, we cover Hodorowsky's Dune. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we like kind of move backwards in time towards the novel. But we already covered the novel, so it's it's complicated. Yeah. Um, the reason we're doing a From the Vault episode is I was just at Worldcon, and I'm still kind of beat and tired. Um, didn't have time to really cover anything after getting back from that, but I had a great time at the con, and if you uh, were at my panel on adaptations, I was on with uh, Scalzi and Fonda Lee, um, that was a great panel. I thought it went awesome. And thank you for checking out the podcast. Uh, hopefully you like Dune coverage. So the, we do at some point in this episode talk a little bit about Hodorowsky's Dune. We hadn't seen it at that point yet. So we're kind of outside looking in kind of thing. Um, so I don't know if we were completely correct about everything that we said about it. But yeah. look forward in the future to <laughs> Hodorowsky's Dune, the documentary, where we t- where we get in depth and talk more about it and understand the full picture of uh, Dune adaptations, I think. Or if you wanted to, if you didn't want to wait, it's on our uh, Patreon feed. So check that out. Um, so we also want to announce what our next actual project's going to be because we decided on it just a little bit ago. Um, we are going to be tackling the story, saying goodbye to Yang and the adaptation after Yang. We're looking at a movie and it just seemed interesting to us. A24 film seems weird. Seems like it's about artificial intelligence, which I love talking about and, and researching. So right up my alley. And I think if, you, uh, if you're a sci-fi fan who's enjoying uh, Dune, then you might want to check this one out too. Yeah, and the director of that film, Kaganata, like I'm really excited. to. T- I did a little bit of looking and I can't wait to talk about this person. He seems super interesting. All right, so enjoy this previous Patreon exclusive. And we'll be back next week for After Yang. Uh, enjoy the episode. This week, we are revisiting Frank Herbert's Dune, but this time it's going to be the adaptation directed by David Lynch, uh, the 1984 version. And uh, I, I think we're both going to be brimming with thoughts. Uh, you know, we, we did cover Dune about a month ago or so, maybe two now. And, uh, you know, coming out of Denis Villeneuve's film, I think we both enjoyed it. We're excited to see what else comes from that. Uh, but it was great to put it all into context by seeing this David Lynch. And, and I'm a David Lynch fan, so I'm really excited to talk about th- that as well as, like, where this sits in sort of his filmography at this point. Yeah, I uh, David Lynch is a figure that I have always heard people talk about with a lot of respect. He has definitely directed and created things that I'm aware of, um, but I haven't watched a lot of his work. Um, And the stuff that I did watch from him, it's been a long time and I didn't realize it was him at the time. So I don't even necessarily have it all as like part of his uh, body of work, like in in my mind. So he's a filmmaker I don't know a ton about. um, So I'm definitely interested to hear about him. And this was a very interesting watch. It was... Um, everything it basically was hyped up to be for, from people. It's a very weird movie. Um, the the visuals, uh, the storytelling, everything about it is is just kind of off the wall and trippy and eighties and strange. And um, I 
simultaneously loved a lot of it and found a lot of it very janky and and uh, just kind of clunky. And there were some things that I did definitely did not like, but overall, it was a pretty enjoyable watch. And there's a lot to like here too. Um, it's a, I think it's a very ambitious adaptation. Um, and he definitely like went for it with just a lot of the choices that were being made. Um, I think there was a lot of technological limitations at the time that held them back. But um, I also think that what he was able to achieve is pretty astounding because the effects were groundbreaking at the time. And even the ones that don't hold up super well, I can still appreciate for how cutting edge and groundbreaking they were uh, when they were made. Yeah, uh, you're kind of tapping into how I feel about this uh, this film, and that's that I love this movie. I, th- I thoroughly enjoyed myself, but it is bad at times. Like there are <laughs> things that are like actually bad. And, uh, you know, and doing some small research on the side, I, I found out some of the reasons there was a lot of like intervention by the studio and, and you know, David Lynch wasn't able to get final cut, which is the only time he's he hasn't been able to have final cut on a film of his. And he 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 genuinely feels like this is his failure. He refuses to talk about it. Um, he refuses huh. to be associated with it. He completely hates it. Um, and they've been they I think Universal is like offered for him to come back and do like a new director's cut because they shot like four hours worth of material. And then wow. he was forced to cut it down to this like two hour length. And uh, he he's like, no, no fucking way. I don't want it. I don't like it. Uh, I don't want anything to do with it. That's kind of a shame. Like, I can understand it, though. You know, like he's he probably just wants to move on from it and do different things and not focus so much on something that he considers a failure in the past. I'm sure he's thinking, like, I can't fix it now. Like, it is what it is. And he probably worries that no matter what he does with it, it's going to it's not going to necessarily be viewed in the best light. So, yeah, I think uh, I can respect the decision, but I'm also a little disappointed that for our podcast <laughs> and just for everybody, that we, we don't have the opportunity to see what his vision would have really been. Um, because yeah. I think a lot of my criticisms here, it's always going to be delivered with an asterisk next to it of, I don't know if this was something that he actually wanted or if this is something that the studio insisted on or if this is a problem that would have gone away had he been able to do things the way that he really wanted to. So that is kind of a shame and and I would have liked to see that version, but I think it needed to happen a lot sooner. It needed to happen, uh, you know, when the movie came out, not not yeah, not now. So apparently he, you, you know, we have kind of talked in our in our Dune coverage. We talked a little bit about like the track record of an adaptation of Dune. And we talked about Jodorowsky and yeah. his vision of it. And it was like I was reading more into that. I think honestly that might be like required viewing for us at some point. Uh, Maybe we should do an episode sort of on it. Fill it in. Yeah, I think I think we really should. Because he apparently was trying to create this like cinematic uh, beacon that was going to be this 12 hour like epic that was wow. involving like Geiger, who is the mm-hmm. production designer behind um, H.R. Geiger behind Alien and and like so many minds were brought together for it. And it was so ambitious. He wanted like, you know, at the time, like some ridiculous budget, which was like triple to quadruple what people were normally getting. Mm-hmm. And apparently he feels that like American American Hollywood studios sort of tanked it, whereas he felt like he could have potentially got it off the ground in another market. But I don't know. There's a lot. There's a lot built into that. But it's funny because after 
uh, Jodorowsky, it moves into the hands of Ridley Scott, who we have covered before. Right, yeah. And uh, Ridley Scott, I think, you know, notably worked with Geiger also on Alien, like we just mentioned. So just thinking of like all of these pieces coming together and, and starting to connect. Yeah, there's some interesting connections like uh, Sean Young, who plays uh, uh, Cheney, is uh, also Rachel. Rachel from Blade, Blade Runner. Runner. Yeah, so... I, yeah, I, I she was so familiar. I had to look her up because I was like, "Where do I know her from?" And then when I saw that connection, it totally uh, the light bulb went off. And I didn't know that Ridley Scott was. I didn't remember at least that Ridley Scott was uh, in line to potentially direct at some point. So I wonder if she got brought on at some point when he was connected to it, or or how that how that connection was made. From this iteration, like after the Jodorowsky thing fell apart, it turned into six years of development for this film which three and a half um, David Lynch was on for, you okay. know, developing and creating. And we have to talk about the fact that, like, this this movie it clearly is a reaction to Star Wars. It's a reaction. And I think it's, like, in a post, you know, Blade Runner world after Ridley had his hands on it a little bit. And, like, I think they're, the influences are definitely there. And, um, yeah, I just I, I still can't believe how enjoyable I found it because what a mess behind the scenes I found it out that it was and how, you know, it's just fascinating. And then, of course, the cast is is like surprising, familiar faces. Like you oh, said, yeah. Sean Young, uh, Virginia Madsen. Did you realize that Virginia Madsen was uh, from Candyman? No, she's Helen from Helen from Candyman. Yeah. Oh, wait. And she was. Oh, she was the princess. OK. At the very start, she also looked familiar. I didn't know why. Wow. Some familiar faces for the podcast. Well, what about Max von Sydow? I love Max and Max von Sydow is like cinematic legend. Yeah, I was thinking this is seems like kind of a star studded cast. Oh, Um, Patrick Stewart, Patrick Stewart. Yeah, I mean, uh, and even Kyle MacLachlan, you know, I I feel like he's not necessarily a huge name, but people know him, you know, and Twin Peaks. Yeah, yeah. Feature film debut for him also is Dune here. And uh, I love I also love Kyle MacLachlan. So like this cast put and then, of course, uh, McLaughlin would go to, go on to work with David Lynch again eventually, and like their connection is is obviously clear there. So Twin Pines came after this film. Twin Peaks, yeah. Sorry, Twin Peaks. <laughs> Clearly, I'm not the biggest David Lynch <laughs> fan. I've only seen like a couple episodes of Twin Peaks. I, I've never watched the whole show. It's a show. So David Lynch, in in general, is a filmmaker, um, and there is actually a embarrassingly long list of these filmmakers for me, who I think I will enjoy if I could like really sink my teeth into several of their movies and start to understand like what people like about their style and their work because he he has this reputation as being sort of weird and dense like like his films being kind of weird and dense and like hard to understand but having a lot of layers to them and um that sounds interesting to me but whenever i think about watching a lynch film i always feel like worried i'm not gonna get it or something and so i don't i'm not like super interested <laughs> get in watching it, it. i don't you'd know i don't know what it sure. is i think it, you'd really enjoy lynch too because he's like extremely surrealist so did like, he do and, um and it's the one with tom cruise and like what's it called vanilla sky or something is that lynch not vanilla sky you're talking about magnolia does that have tom cruise in it yeah but that's that's pta paul thomas anderson okay maybe i'm confusing again there's a there's several of these directors who whose work I haven't gotten super into, but I, I think I would probably like, um, you know, I, I feel like that's almost a separate podcast. I need, I need like a film Sherpa to show me, show me the way and, and help me understand why I should like this stuff. 
Um, <laughs> and then I could, yeah. then I could really get into it. I, I mean, I, I don't even think you necessarily need that. There are some more approachable films, but like, I know for a fact that if we sat down to watch like Eraserhead, you would fucking love it. Yeah, I never seen that. Did he do the fly? Blue Velvet. No, that's 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 uh, Cronenberg. Never mind. Right, the fly yeah. is Cronenberg. It is. Yeah. Yeah. See, the problem is I also like I don't know what movies are his and what movies aren't. So okay, so tell me some more movies that Lynch directed. So I already mentioned Eraserhead, mm-hmm. and then uh, Elephant Man, the Elephant Man. Yeah, I've heard the name, but I have not seen it. I know you've heard of Blue Velvet, right? Heard of it, yeah. Yeah. Um, Wild at Heart. Uh, this is the one that I'm most shocked you haven't seen, honestly, is Mulholland Drive. Have you seen Mulholland Drive? Maybe. I don't remember it, if so. Who's in it? Naomi Watts. Naomi Watts, okay. It's got a name that's like, that movie could be about anything. So that's why I, I, I can't remember what that's about, if I have seen it. And maybe if I could remember what it's about, maybe I'd remember it. <laughs> And honestly, I think a lot of people know him from Dune because it, it's kind of his most commercial okay. thing that he created. And, and I had seen funny. this movie before, but like, I think it was just on because I was watching it and like so much of it. I have no memory of every now and then I see something. I'm like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember seeing that as a kid. I think it was on. I was so young that I was like goofing around on, on the carpet playing with toys or something. And the fucking movie was on and I was watching. I'd watch it every now and then and be like, that's weird. I'm going to go back to doing whatever I'm doing as a kid. Um, so yeah, that's like kind of my memory of this movie. And, and I definitely did not uh, really understand what the hell was happening. Yeah. I mean, it's there's a lot going on. There's a lot of a lot of uh, VO to sort of explain what's going on to you, which isn't the most interesting thing. But uh uh, another thing that we have to mention while talking about Lynch is uh, Twin Peaks, which you mentioned briefly. I mean, I haven't seen all of Twin Peaks, but like if you've seen some of it, you start, sort of can get a taste for his style. I would like to. That's one of those shows that like I'd like to go back and, and uh, finish up. And then I think he like sort of brought it back like much yeah, later. There was a revival or something, right? Yeah, which is cool. And I and honestly, that's that's one of those David Lynch things that I want to dive into head first. But I, and I know for a fact, a lot of people that are our age. That's how that was their connection with David Lynch and then sort of went and consumed everything else along the way Um, because it was massive, like in terms of like just like prestige television, like David Lynch was way ahead of his time with like came out in the 1990, 1991. Mm. Are there any of those movies that you listed that are adaptations that we could actually cover on the main feed? Because I feel kind of bad if if our David Lynch coverage is going to be this sort of patreon only exclusive content which like i'm you know i'm happy (laughs) that we have cool content for the patrons but i also feel like he's such a major filmmaker we we deserve to touch on him in the main feed maybe i guess at some point we'll release this in the main feed in the future so there's that at least if we if nothing else so just looking through his list i I, uh read that wild at heart was based on is based on a novel okay uh, as well as the elephant man but it's also based on like various works the elephant Man. okay so the elephant man is the one of those two that i've heard of um let us know if you are a lynch fan if either of those interests you more um yeah, I'd be curious to know. That's something that, you know, again, he's a big name. He's somebody who I would like to know more about. And I feel like whenever we get a chance to cover a director in the main feed, I get to selfishly learn a bunch about them and a bunch about what makes them interesting. So I'm down for that. But we're talking about his stuff now, and I have a lot of thoughts. One thing I want to touch on that you just mentioned uh, was the voiceover. Um, I actually think the amount of voiceover in this movie ages more poorly than some of the visual effects do um i 100 hated the v- the amount of like every now and then there was a vo moment where i was like okay i can see why they did this moment it kind of helps 
um, further explain something. It's always like exposition or like explaining a character motivation or something. And every now and then it was like an interesting moment that was kind of lifted from the novel. And we've seen this a lot in adaptations where they feel like they got to put that moment from the novel on screen. But so much of it was unnecessary explanations of freaking character thoughts and it was bouncing around to different people's like heads all the time it wasn't just one character it was everybody we'd get just like a one-off thought from a random character and it would always be something that was obvious like you're i'm watching the scene i can see that she is surprised that her you know that paul is okay from the test or whatever but we have to have this voiceover moment where lady jessica thinks oh my son he survived or something like that. Like it's it's all it, there's so many of them were so redundant and maddening. Um, I have to imagine that that was some something that was being pushed on by the by the studios, maybe afraid people wouldn't follow the movie or something. At least I hope because I, you know I, I feel like filmmakers got to realize that this stuff is not so necessary. Uh, that it needs to be there all the time. I don't know. I think you're spot on with the fact that if there's anything, if I'm going to be a, like a Lynch defender in this scenario, if there's anything that I feel like he hated, it's the fact that like it was dumbing down what was happening to the point that like anyone could follow it, a very like generalizing it so that people can follow what's going on. The VO decision is like, it's awful, even for the time period. I yeah. don't think that that's a norm for the time period because that we had other films around that and before yeah. this that were much better at handling voiceover when needed and just like yeah, it just felt it felt really rough. And that was one of the biggest things for me that like if I feel like I'm willing to go into this and watch it as if I'm a viewer from that time period and give it the benefit of the doubt, knowing that there was like some some things that didn't go perfectly. But if somebody watched it today it, that had sort of didn't want to go in with that background, like it would be like near unwatchable because of those VO. Yeah, I, I keep thinking about Blade Runner and how there are versions of that movie where there is tons of voiceover. And one of the things that the final cut does is eliminate all that voiceover and the movie's much better for it. Um, and I feel like that would be the case here. Like most of the voiceover you don't need, maybe all of it, I don't know. Um, and you could cut a you could cut this movie in a way that would let you actually appreciate what is on screen in a way that is hard to do when someone is always talking, which is what it feels like in this movie. It feels like there's never a moment where we are just appreciating kind of what's happening. There's almost always someone narrating. Um, and I, I found that maddening. And it's the kind of stuff that frustrates me in movies where it's like, let the let the art of what you've made speak for itself. And they, yep. you know, that just kept not happening. Lynch talked about like from the start, he was making compromises and he was selling out. That's how he he framed it. He was like, I was selling out right away. I was letting them do whatever. Like he was like young and naive, he explains. And he goes on to say all these things. And I I, I think that the the Lynch we have today exists because of his experience with Dune. Interesting. Right? Like, so he, he learned lessons from this. I mean, like he was he was already this like brilliant filmmaker, but I think that he saw this moment and was like, that was three and a half years of my life. That will never happen again. Mm. And he's gone on to be this auteur filmmaker who creates these like unique stories that no one else could create other than David Lynch. So I guess it's for like, I think there are plenty of people who enjoy this still. Yeah. And it is kind of a fun campy sci-fi. Sci there is stuff to enjoy here. Do not get me wrong. Oh, definitely. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, real quick, I want to just while, while you mentioned it, um, my wife, her parents. Um, so I, this the, at Thanksgiving, I just heard about the story. Um, her father had watched, like, 
I think all of the new Dune movie or maybe half of the new Dune movie and was liking it. And then so he was like, we need to watch Dune um, to 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 uh, my wife's mother. Um, and so they were like, all right, we're going to watch this thing. And they sat down to watch it. And supposedly like 30 minutes in, <laughs> um, she's like, I don't like this movie doesn't look very cutting edge. I don't know what people are talking about. I don't know about this movie. And like she and then like her her dad was like, did I fall asleep? I don't remember this part. (laughs) It really took them like a half hour to realize they were watching the wrong version. That's amazing. They were watching this version of Dune and they thought it was the new one. That's so good. Uh, And then they I think they just saw the shields and I think they were like, this can't be the new one. Oh man, those shields, dude. <laughs> uh, anyway, I just thought that was very, very funny uh, story. But um, <laughs> uh, speaking of the the, the VFX um, corridor crew, who I've mentioned a few times on the podcast, um, they're a YouTube channel who I really like. They released an episode recently comparing the original Dune to this Dune and a lot of the VFX from both. And you hear that and you might think that it's a lot of them dunking on this movie, but it's actually not. Um, they do a little bit of that because some of these effects just don't hold up. But some of the stuff that they were able to do with this film is actually pretty incredible. And it's stuff that I wouldn't have appreciated if I hadn't seen the breakdowns of like how they were able to achieve stuff with miniatures and force perspectives and all mm-hmm. this different stuff that you have to do when you don't have CGI really to, to on your behalf or you have very early CGI that you can't do a lot with. Yeah. I mean, that's the famous Star Wars story, too, right? Yeah. It's like that's, you know, Star Wars did a ton of miniature work ton of like cutting edge, uh, edge uh, special effects. Speaking of Star Wars, apparently writer and director David Lynch turned down Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi to direct this movie, telling George Lucas, it's your thing and it's not my thing. Wow. Huh. So what, what interesting connection there as well. Yeah. What could have been a David Lynch version of Return of the Jedi, which is my least least favorite of the original trilogy. So, you know, I'm more open to yeah. that one, possibly having some changes to it. But. Yeah, I, who knows? I don't know. I mean, it's not like this movie is so spectacular that I'm like, oh, yeah, you bring David Lynch into it and he's going to make an amazing Star Wars film. I don't know that that's true. Yeah, who knows? Um, but yeah, we got to talk more about just like what your reaction was to this movie. What were your thoughts? Right. You sound like it was mostly positive, but like specifically, what did you like about it? Yeah, I mean, so for one, it feels like it was taken seriously, especially from like the script writing perspective. Like I think that and I would be I, honestly... I know that we've talked about it in our Dune coverage already, but like Denis Villeneuve was, I think there's no question that there was some sort of influence. He must have seen the David Lynch version. I forget if we said he did or did not see that version. I'm sure he's no, seen he it. did. He did. I'm sure yeah. he's seen it. Yeah. He, he said what we mentioned was that he said that he wanted to make the movie that was playing in his head when he originally read the novel. So I think right. he was going back to that, but I can see that there's some stuff in this movie that has to have affected the new one right there's like certain moments and scenes yeah specifically the moment where we see baron harkonnen's feet dragging yeah maybe. in this film i was like whoa like that's like i mean there's the, like that connection and that that specific detail of the feet hanging yeah. um i don't know i felt like there's there was some something stuff. there there's definitely some stuff and you could say like oh a lot of that's in the book and sure but like there's a visual language that that you can identify similarities and that's not coming from the novel because that's filmmaker stuff right like that's how how you are conceptualizing something on screen and when you see similarities there it's like yeah there probably is some influence or homage happening 
even if it was just like like you said an homage like yeah. i'm not saying he's stealing anything but you know and for that reason to have been the first adaptation is notable i think yeah. that this i think it looks incredible a lot of the set design a lot of the costuming i think that you know i i wasn't a massive fan of the way that it was shot it felt very like bland at times there were times that were very cinematic there were also times that it felt like television yeah it felt very like evenly lit yeah and um just like the some of the some of the camera choices weren't very interesting to me but then there were other times that there were so some weird interesting technical things like when any the visions the way that they're they're like having those dissolves and everything that happened in there and weird effects that they're putting over top of people i think that stuff was cool and i think it worked but overall like just like the scene to scene conversations weren't like really really um cinematic to me it just felt like kind of kind of smaller scale um but then we get to the some of the bigger then we get to the some of the bigger things like the the sandworms and the like the ships that they're coming off of when it's raining and there's also cool crazy shit that's part of the reason i love this movie too is because that like spacing guilds like leader that like worm slug thing was fucking insane that thing is wild that's my favorite yeah. character probably from this because yeah. i hope we see something like that in the new in the in the sequel and, and in fact right. this gets me really excited for the sequel because i'm wondering how how he's going to tackle it and honestly i think the level of difficulty might be higher for the sequel with the caveat of you won't be able to make that following movie without the first one doing well so of course that's very difficult to do but this, this there's so many wild huge things that happen in the second half of that book um and that we see in this movie that it, it and honestly it was almost too much at times um, definitely like the the, that, the the end felt almost chaotic and, and hard to follow and um, so massive and and um, in in ambition that it was difficult for anybody to put on screen especially in like a 30 minute time frame which is about how much time we have <laughs> devoted for what is going to be the entire second movie I imagine in a yeah. Danny Villeneuve News version it, this this movie also reiterated to me that like like you said Denis Villeneuve has his work cut out for him because yeah. I felt the same way even in Frank Herbert's novel it's just like very quick very abrupt a uh, lot of things flying by a yeah. lot of huge concepts and details and things yeah well and and Herbert gets gets through it by focusing in on certain perspectives that are away from other things and so we hear stuff being referenced that like our main characters aren't directly participating in. And we don't actually see them play out as scenes. Um, so you're, there's like some trickery you can do to avoid. Now, whether or not you like that is definitely open for debate. But like that's, I think, how Herbert avoids some of the you know wild stuff that's happening. Um, I think the way to do it is to slow down and, ma- and create a bunch of original scenes mm-hmm. to bring all these moments to life um, and create new moments to fill it out, honestly. And I think that's what... Uh, a really good filmmaker is going to do and I'm excited to see. Yeah, and I we've heard that he will be pulling some some th- things from other books as well. I mm-hmm. assume that will help wrap out the yeah. end of of this here, the, the end of Dylan Daniel News version. I think since we last talked about the movie, I've also heard a lot about how he has plans for further movies after Dune right. 2, which is pretty exciting and and the, you know following some of the extended universe more books and stuff like that um because apparently he's a fan. He's not just a fan of the first book. He, he's a fan of the series. 
So that's pretty cool to hear. Right. Which I found to be because I remember asking you when we were covering the novel, I was like, you know, is this all worth pursuing? Is all of Herbert's work like sort of this giant universe that's that's worth jumping into? And I think Denis Villeneuve's passion for it proves that it is. And I'm excited to see what he can bring to it. And and it would be awesome to get a chance to cover more novels down the road and, and, you know, more cover more of Denis Villeneuve's films as they come out. Absolutely. I don't love the idea of locking Denis Villeneuve into exclusively Dune films for like the foreseeable future, but at the same time, it feels awesome. I agree with that. Yeah, it's kind of like he's so good at at other things that it is kind of I don't know. I I, I would think I would be excited to see like three or four Dune movies from him. It'd be a lot of his film filmography. It's going to be a a while. It's going to be a lot. Yeah, but like it could be his Star Wars, you know what I mean? Like it's not right. a, that's not bad to have a freaking iconic trilogy or something. Well, and if it if it maintains the same level of quality and he's able to like slam dunk all of it, like I'm yeah. I'm absolutely down to see it. I just I just love Denis Villeneuve as a filmmaker, and I I don't know those further books, so I don't know if there's like a story arc that makes sense to make a trilogy or quadrilogy of movies out of that will be narratively satisfying. That's a big question. If you've read all the books, let us know, um, but don't spoil anything. (laughs) So just let us know in in a general way. Um, I'm definitely curious, but yeah, I want, I want to know like some of your favorites because I feel like we've, we've definitely been pretty critical, but like what are some of your favorite moments from this movie? Uh, Fade as sting playing fade is, is just hilarious to me. Sting is fade. He's, he's pretty good. He, he is like, I feel like Sting here feels like a very new someone who's very new to acting, and yeah. in a way he's well, he like, doesn't have a lot of lines. He doesn't say a lot. He's doing a lot with his eyes, almost too much. But what kind of mm-hmm. works is like the Harkonnens in general are so expressive and um, kind of diabolical, and they seem to get so much joy out of their like sadism, um, and. So his like wild eyes that are over emoting kind of works in that mode. It makes him feel mm-hmm. like kind of on par with the Baron who's way over the top. Um, but on the other hand, it kind of feels like maybe he didn't know what he was doing a little bit and he was just trying stuff. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I bet you there was a little bit of that experimentation going on for sure. Um, you mentioned the Baron and how over the top, uh, Speaking of over the top, the the like it was legit gross at times. Like his his makeup and the spitting on on uh, Jessica was like I was like oh god this is so fucking off putting and like it's so Lynchian to be like let's just fucking swing for the fences. Apparently Fade by the way when he showed up in like the the winged thong thing was supposed to be nude in that scene and and then the studio was like no fucking way. <laughs> oh really? Sting was gonna be nude? <laughs> yeah, that's a it, it was an interesting choice. Uh, the the you know that black thong diaper thing he's wearing <laughs> whatever you yeah. want to call it apparently they threw it together at the last second too because like they were like the studio was like no naked and he was yeah. like okay well we'll fucking put something together real quick yeah it's so funny too how he's like stretching and like the, the i don't know the you could tell that has no back to it at all it's just a front the front <laughs> other things that i loved um i really did think that they they played up the thurfer uh gurney and Duncan Idaho relationship, I felt like that worked for me with with Paul, um, especially in the beginning, how they were setting all that up. I bought the fact that like they, you know, the the thing that's tough is that like having seen uh, Timothy Chalamet as like a young Paul, seeing like twenty five to thirty year old Kyle MacLachlan is like a little harder to buy as like this young innocent son, but it works just well enough because I think I think he does pull it off, MacLachlan, and. Uh, 
I enjoyed seeing a lot of the story interpreted in a different way. And as much as I think Lynch gets flack for this film for it being so different, it really wasn't that different until that final act where you have to make decisions that are very different. Up until like the attack, the assassination. You mean you mean different from the novel? Different from the novel, yeah. yeah. And then we get to the Fremen basically that area Mm -hmm. you have to make decisions at that point like what you're going to do and lynch decided to do like a montage thing that was pretty rough but like i appreciated the fact that like alia was there Aaliyah, yeah and uh that was pretty pretty we were wondering how how someone would pull that off and we so we've seen now one method which is uh have a two-year-old mouth lines and then have somebody else come in and and do some sort of voiceover uh dubbing and overall like just as a fan of surrealist like weird shit like do something different like that's that's my main takeaway from this is that like it's just it's batshit crazy and it's like lynch was allowed to do just enough to where it's like nobody else is gonna like interpret some of this stuff this way and uh some of the choices that he probably pushed actors into or like allowed them to do um yeah i don't know overall it's just a, it's a memorable movie to me and i find I, even if i walk away thinking that it's not necessarily like an amazing dune adaptation it's memorable and that's that's important i think in filmmaking yeah okay so i got some moments i got to talk about um a lot of them good um some of them not so much um for one there was a, a an early performance by duke leto who was played by okay. yeah i think it's i think it's jurgen approach now okay uh yeah i wasn't finding that name for some reason but yeah uh i think he did a great job delivering this line early he says without change something sleeps inside us and seldom awakens the sleeper must awaken and uh it's part of a longer sort of monologue he's giving and i thought it was really excellently delivered it's a great line and um i was early on i was like okay you know i'm feeling this movie and and that was kind of a moment where i was seeing some impressive acting and um, again, uh, uh, the the Baron I thought was quite intimidating. Um, mm-hmm. The there was a madness to him and a emoting and a sort of a diabolical laughter that would come up. That it, it's very over the top, but um, it is also frightening. And um, I don't know the idea of this little like spigot that you can just pull out on people and they start bleeding everywhere and he's kind of vampiric and stuff. Like, I don't know if he was like drinking the blood or what, but they're all like eating, eating meat in weird ways. And there's just a lot of unsettling things going on with uh, the Harkonnens that really works. Speaking of that scene where he like gets underneath the, the exhaust vent and he's covering himself in like black black liquid liquid. Yeah. And then that's kind of a reference maybe potentially as well. But anyway, but then he goes down, he like floats down and like pulls that person's and he's just covering himself. That was like, I mean, that scene worked because it was over the top and crazy. Yeah. Like you if to be taken seriously, like especially in a two hour film, like you got to you got to ramp things up pretty quick. And like, you know, short of like killing a dog or something like that, just like <laughs> going up and like randomly pulling a thing out of somebody's chest and covering yourself in their blood and yeah. like being just like overjoyed about it is like pretty, pretty good shorthand for like this guy's insane they had some sort of name for that thing it was like the blood tap or something because they install one uh, later on Fuper heart Howard. tap maybe heart heart, heart tap plugs, or something yeah something, something like but i mean that's a that's an idea i don't remember that in the book and, and it was definitely pretty shocking um so yeah that's all good I, i've talked about how much i hated the voiceover um oh the uh the moment with the hand in the uh in the gom jabbar and the in the test um mm-hmm. i actually found the the hand horror 
to be even stronger in this movie. Like I, I f- more viscerally felt like, oh, like I, if that's what he's feeling right now, I, yeah, you want to pull your hand out of there. Um, in the in the Villeneuve version, we get the sort of burning hand, but here we get this like nasty, ga- like open gash, and it's like open, like, and it's kind of peeling away. And I think it is supposed to be getting burned, but almost more by like acid than flame. Mm-hmm. Um, right. and it's horrifying and, and, uh, you know, the way it was visualized definitely, uh, was, uh, was really something. How did you think the voice was represented? Uh, like pretty good. I could see some influence. Um, I think, you know, Villeneuve is better. Um, I, you know, but it was, it was pretty good for the time. I, I think it's not as powerful in this movie. Um, the first time you show someone using the voice, you show someone being able to resist it. Um, I think is kind kind of undercuts the power of it. Um, and you know, I think, uh, in, in the, you know, the later adaptation, we, we get a lot, we get a, a, a more of a sense of just how powerful this, this, you know, well, speaking is. of speaking of underpowering the voice and the Bene Gesserit, they, they went from, instead there was like this martial art that they kind of knew that was like the weirding way. And then they've turned it into like a module sort of thing to be like harnessing some sort of power. Whereas like before it was something that they could they could sort of do on their own. And, and so I guess like it's probably easier for an audience to comprehend it without having like a scene to explain the weirding way and that sort of thing. Yeah. But uh, that, that whole like gun thing was like, it didn't really work super well for didn't me. Didn't look very good. Yeah. The idea of your, you, you like kind of say a certain phrase in a certain voice and it makes your like shots more powerful, <laughs> I guess. Right. Um, yeah. It's kind of out there and, and yeah, not necessarily the, the best moment. Um, it, it just felt like the Bene Gesserit were less powerful. Like, I felt like Jessica was less powerful oh, because sure. you had Jessica, to have these, like, modules. Super like, underserved. These little things that were, like, weapons that you could use, whereas instead of, like, I don't know. She just felt like she was, like, very underserved. Yeah, yeah. agreed. Uh, Chaney, which we've talked about, was almost non-existent in this movie. She just shows up yeah. briefly to be... They kiss a couple times. They kiss yeah. a couple times, and then the, uh, she... All of a sudden, like, they're in love, and we're, like, supposed to... I don't know. We're supposed to feel something about that, but well, the montage, dude, the montage. Two years go by, and they're just kissing. They're kissing for two years. Yeah, very bizarre. Um, you know, it's it's, it's unfortunate. Um, also, I mean, like the new movie definitely has caught fire for, or not caught fire, but caught heat um, for its uh, underrepresentation of Middle Eastern uh, people uh, in, in both the cast and in the crew. This movie is all white everywhere oh, there's like borderline like making people look like they're have different races and stuff you know what i mean which is a touchy you know that's not a great way to go at all yeah so uh th- yeah this movie yeah doesn't even make an attempt it feels like which is uh very highly questionable so i just want to get that out there um i i really like patrick stewart as gurney halleck um i found duncan idaho to be forgettable in this movie which is kind of depressing because he's such an interesting character um, so I think that, you know, that that's points for the new movie, too, that does a lot better job with him. Um, just, you know, really bringing that character to life. Um, so many familiar character actors too show up in this uh, familiar faces. You got Brad Dorif, who was uh, Peter DeVries. Yeah. Worm Tongue. Worm Tongue. He's in yeah. um, he's in Deadwood. He's yeah. I mean, he's he's this really interesting guy. He's been in a lot of different stuff. And he's always like some sort of oddball character. I didn't realize I went and looked at his IMDb, by the way, at uh, Brad Dorff's uh-huh. and um, he looks like he hasn't aged like from the 80s to the, <laughs> to the Lord of the Rings yeah. films and then to now. And he's like 70 something years old. And I'm like, Jesus, like he, he looks the exact same. Yeah. His face has stayed the same. His hair has just gotten whiter, basically. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Um, Dean Stockwell, um, who is, uh, is a Dr. Yui, I believe, right? Um, Great actor. He, uh, rest in peace. I think he just passed away recently, so... Um, he did. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very unfortunate. Um, he's somebody who I've, you know, very familiar with from Quantum Leap and, and uh, he was in Star Trek. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm familiar with him. And then I saw Linda Hunt, who uh, I think is in like the Poltergeist films or something. She's a familiar face um, as a oh, yeah, definitely. shout out Mapes. Uh, so. she, I went through her IMDb and she's like the voice. She's like a like extremely pro- like I recognize her from films, but also like super prolific voice actor. I mean, I can see it. She has a pretty memorable voice. So I can see how that would that would work. Yeah, I was seeing she was like the narrator in almost all of the God of War games. Oh, she's the narrator in the games. Interesting. Right. How about that. Um, so anyway, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of these kind of character actors. That's why I felt like it was a fairly star studded cast. I'm not saying all of these people are A-listers or anything, but like recognizable, at least in, in through the scope of time, um, recognizable people. Um, so that was all great, and and I think a lot of them do pretty good work. Um, you know, for those of them who actually get a chance, um, there's a lot of just weird moments where it felt like the strangeness of this movie is what is actually one of its best selling points. Like um, that 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 big tank shows up with the spacing guild being in there. He delivers this sort of. Uh, it's almost like a negotiation with the emperor, but then later on we see him th- outright threaten it, whatever it is, threatening the emperor, and kind of flexing, like showing where the true power lies. Um, and uh, I've been playing, actually, just recently played an eight and a half hour session of a full game of the Dune board game. <laughs> it took us that long to finish, uh, but all we had all six factions and we played it for eight and a half hours. We took we took some breaks and we got dinner and some stuff happened during that time. But um, we actually played it to its conclusion. And one of the factions in that is the Spacing Guild. And, um, you know, it, it was cool seeing how like how that was reflected here and like uh, the shifting power dynamics um, you know, you only get a little bit of it, but it is clear. But anyway, all that was to say, there's a moment where that tank's getting pulled out, and then there's a person who comes walking out with a little fucking mop. They're like vacuuming or sweeping or, or something, something or, yeah. a, or a broom, and they're like sweeping some like goo off the floor, yeah. but barely like getting any of it because there's so much of it everywhere. And they're just like following him out with that. Like those are the kind of details that I'm just like, that's that's just cool. Like that is so weird. And then just the entire sequence with when they're doing space travel is some of the weirdest stuff you'll ever see. And I think I put right. a lot of it on our on our Instagram. So if you follow us on Instagram, you see it in the in the story cuz I captured a lot of that moment cuz I just had to. Yeah. When he's like floating through space like on his own as like a spirit thing and then like creating planets or whatever, oh, yeah. like that shit's it was getting fucking bonkers. <laughs> yeah, it's trippy, man. Uh very interesting. Um the the worm design is I actually think it's pretty good. I mean, yeah, it's like at times it doesn't look great, but other times it looks really good. Oh, I loved it. Yeah, I love that like practical look, and he's like sp- like spewing out stuff all the time. Yeah, well, and I was actually talking about like Shai Halud, like the the worms on Arrakis. Oh, oh, okay. uh, but gotcha. but you're right. That other guy is like again one of my favorite characters because just how fucking crazy he looks. But um, yeah, uh, Shai Halud, and then like the the and then the moment where he drinks the water of life and he's surrounded by a bunch of the worms. Um, yeah. I was like, I wonder if we're gonna get that in the movie because I don't remember it happening that way in the book. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think so. I don't think it does because I think he just is like down in the caves when he drinks it. He's not like I out so, on the yeah. surface, surrounded by the giant worms. Um, so that was cool to see so many of them in the same, I think, in the same scene. 
Um, I think that really sells his sort of connection to them. Uh, one of the major differences um, is that the prophecy of him being the savior and the sort of second coming, <laughs> he's almost a Jesus-like character, right? Um, he's he's this prophet. He's this, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, just a savior, right? Messiah, yeah. Messiah, that's the word. And um, in the book, it is very clearly like, questionable whether or not we should trust anything because it's all been set up by the Bene Gesserit. We get hints of that here and, and it is sort of referenced, but I don't think the movie does enough to sell that point. And instead it feels like it's embracing him as Messiah. And it almost leans into the idea that he is like supernaturally, he is this messianic, almost magical figure who has almost a supernatural connection to Arrakis. And um, as he starts to fulfill the prophecies, we get a lot of people, a lot of Fremen in hushed tones going, oh my God, he's fulfilling these prophecies. And um, I think it's very easy to lose sight of how constructed this was because that's kind of a high level, difficult concept to wrap your head around. Um, but I actually think it's one of the most interesting parts of Dune. Um, the way that prophecy and uh, this controlling group um, interact and how they've created prophecies to like basically forge their own path and, 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 and make their own prophecies come true. Um, I think that's really fascinating. And I, I feel like it's a little bit lacking in this in this adaptation just from yeah. this first watch. I, I do love that as readers with Frank Herbert's novel, you can choose to go either way with it. You know, you can you could you could view it as this like, oh, it's all it's all a coincidence. This prophecy was there and it's all a coincidence along the way. And it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy that they've laid out that because these people treat him as a messiah, then he is a messiah and then he does create these powers. But you could also just view it as he's a he's a special space boy who who, you know, (laughs) has powers and gets like, you know, more powerful from from the spice. Yeah, he's the chosen one. Yeah. Yeah. And he's and he's better than all the women who can't handle his power because he can because he's right. he's a boy. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, there's definitely some some stuff there, um, man. I mean, and then yeah, we get that sort of chaotic ending. Stuff goes off the wall quick. We got all these worms being ridden. We got an atomic bomb blowing up a wall. <laughs> we got a Just storm. So we got all, laser fights and explosions and. Um, Aaliyah Aaliyah shows up out of nowhere, you know, like she's she's rapidly evolved and is like talking and it looks kind of janky and weird. And I I can just imagine like if you have no idea what the hell Dune is and you're and you're watching that part, you're like, what is happening in this movie? I can see why people would hate this, like just completely get lost and and confused. And and maybe that's why the studio was like, oh, we got to have all this voiceover to explain things. But that's not it's like it's like trying to I don't know. I, I can't think of a good metaphor, but you're you're you know you're 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 applying the wrong tool to fix a problem, right? Like it's like you know I'm gonna try and hammer this nail in with a saw. Like I don't know, it's just like it's not right. Like what they did didn't fix the problems that were were sort of organically coming out of the second half of this movie. Um, you know, uh, having some voiceover explaining character motivations early in the movie doesn't solve any of that. It got to the point where the studio was making all the decisions and, and David Lynch was trying to do as much as he could and they just kept pushing back against it. And then we get this final conclusion here that's just, a, it's a pretty big mess. It's tough to follow. Um, 
it's it's wacky like all the things that you expect in a in a science fiction story of the time have to happen so like the bad guy has to get eaten by the worm oh man i couldn't believe what so the baron (laughs) gets stabbed from the gamjabar then he like he's like floating away and screaming and then there's like an ex- in circles yeah in, and then there's yeah. an explosion and he gets sucked out into the storm and then he's flying through the storm and then he gets eaten by a worm <laughs> <laughs> he had uh, the yeah he went through it okay uh, <laughs> that's a lot um i mean yeah he deserved it i guess but like man i don't know it it felt over the top right like it gets cartoony at the end like come on yeah. um Whereas, like, I actually really liked his performance otherwise, you know? Like, I mean, obviously a problematic character. We've talked about how it is very, like, fat-shaming. It's, you know, a character who's clearly... I You know, and in, in their defense, I guess they leaned away from it a little bit by making him also um, sort of diseased. and um, But, you know, all of that, you can say, is a little bit weird to <laughs> lean into to make someone villainous, um, you know, besides just their actions. Um, but, you know... F- with all that being said, I still think that, you know, this is a good version of the Baron. It's a scary version of the Baron. And um, there's a lot to be said for this performance. It's very different yeah. than the performance we get in the new movie. What did you think of the Fade Rotha fight at the end? Just sort of like yeah. wrap out here. Like, did you did you think it was a good conclusion? It was okay. Um, it's, it's pretty in line with how it goes down in the book. Um, again, um, we arrive at it in a, 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 a frantic battle that then arrives at this moment where we get this duel um i didn't think the choreography was that spectacular um it was okay and then yeah and then he dies and then uh he uses the voice to like shove him into the ground or something like he he and he he basically ascends to like godhood he becomes the voice of god and i guess just through his power alone he unleashes he like makes it rain and all of Arrakis, which like, okay, yeah, the other thing I was thinking is like, okay, it's raining in Arrakis. That's just going to create like huge mudslides and probably just ruin a bunch of shit because there's not like a ton of plants. There's not like a seeds everywhere waiting for rain. So you're just having all this water that's going to like interact with the sand and cause mudslides and all kinds of problems. Like, I don't think it's going to like create a paradise. You know, that's it's going to take a lot of work to get to that point. Anyway. You know, I just thought that was funny. Um, but the the final moments of the movie actually reminds me a lot of um, Total Recall um, with Mars. Because isn't there like a whole terraforming thing that happens at the end of that movie or something? The, the, the 80s version I'm talking about. There's some sort of final moment where like the whole planet starts going through some drastic changes. And it's kind of unclear whether or not it's even real, which for that movie works. But here it's like we're just leaning into this over the top, you know, massive moment. And um, I don't know. It's it's hard to earn a moment like that, um, no matter what you do. And, I, and, and this movie doesn't really doesn't really earn it. So I can see people getting turned off by that, too. Um, so, yeah, I can see people who hate this movie. I can see people who love this movie because I do think there's a lot to like there. Um, you touched on the the costuming and just the the, the design of so many things is really clever. Um, it's, you know, a lot of creative, great creative people doing creative things. Um, and, and a lot of it holds up because it was so unique and interesting. So yeah, it's a, it's an interesting mix, this movie. And, uh, I, I feel mixed about it, but it was definitely fun to watch. Yeah. 
But I am glad that we have now covered it because it adds a lot of context to Dune as the project as a whole, as we like to do here yeah. for bonus episodes. And um, I'm excited to see what Denia does next yeah. and, and if we are able to cover some more of Frank Herbert's novels. Yeah, yeah me too, man. Uh, this makes me very excited to see how he tackles the second half of that book because it's going to be difficult. Um, we've already talked about it. So I think let's wrap up here. All right. And with that, until next time. Keep adapting.